be to be back in Oxford and um, especially awesome to see uh, Andrew again. Um, what, I'm, what I've been doing at, um, recently in my work is looking at Atlantic slavery and how the, the histories of Atlantic slavery are really crucial for understanding of international relations, historical understanding of international relations, and how they actually contest and deeply problematise a lot of the narratives we have of international relations and the theories of international relations. So I'm looking at how slavery problematizes the received theories we have of international relations and the narratives of it. And um, I'm also looking at the inadequacy of a lot of the critical traditions which are often associated with IR in terms of how they do and don't look at Atlantic slavery. And one of them is historical materialism. <laughs> Um, and especially historical materialism because it's one of the few traditions of thought to come out of what you could broadly conceive as European thought, although it exceeds that, um, which took and takes slavery seriously. So I want to say that, um, and you'll see the people that I'm talking about, why I'm saying that. Um, but I'm also problematising that as well. So. I'm trying to speak to lots of people, and I probably just make enemies out of everybody. <laughs> That's all right. It's Thursday after. Is it Thursday? It is Thursday. It is Thursday. Yeah, thanks. Um, um, but anyway, let's start with this dude, Pat Robertson, um, talking just after the, the Haitian earthquake in 2010, January 2010. You know, Christy. Something happened a long time ago in Haiti, and uh, people may not want to talk about it. They were under the heel of the French, uh, you know, Napoleon III or whatever. And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you will get us free from the French. Tristan. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And uh, they kicked the French out of, you know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by, by one thing after the other, desperately poor. That island of Hispanola is one island. It's cut down the middle. On the one side is Haiti, on the other side is the Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic is, is prosperous, healthy, full of resorts, etc. Haiti is in desperate poverty. Same island. Uh, they need to have, and we need to pray for them, a great turning to God. And out of this tragedy, I'm optimistic something good may come. But right... La, la, la. Right, so... Um, he's speaking like a 19th century civilizational analyst, right? He, he's right in that kind of tradition, civilizational thought. He's equating, he's, what, what is civilization? It's European, it's Christianity, it's modernization. And all those three things fit together to create this thing called providence. And what are civilizations? Well, they're cultures in excess. And the excess that is injected into cultures in order to produce civilization is this providence. This providence. A providential future based on Christianity and modernization. 
And of course, because the Haitians apparently, you know, had a pact with the devil, they weren't proper Christians. Um, that's why they're poor today. And he briefly glides over the fact that it was the French who were, you know, enslaving the peoples in Haiti. What to do with Haiti? Here's, you know, one of those great documents of European civilization. 1789, just before the Haitian Revolution, the big successful revolution of enslaved peoples in the Americas producing the first post-colonial, post-slaveholding republic in the Americas. Article 1, men are born and remain free, la la la. Article 2, the aim of political association is preservation of the rights of men. No mention of slavery whatsoever. Here's the Constitution of Haiti, 1805. First, self-determination. Article 2, slavery is forever abolished. The most radical line in all of the constitutions around that point in time and the most radical statement coming out of any of the revolutions in that revolutionary period. Here's John Stuart Mill writing in 1836 an essay on civilization. 1836... 40 odd years, 30 something odd years after that, also in the midst of the actual emancipation of enslaved peoples in the British colonies, which in the colonies kind of started in 1833 and went through to 1838. So he's writing 30 years after this, and at that point in time where enslaved people are getting legal emancipation. Here's what he says. The most remarkable of those consequences of advancing civilization, which the state of the world is now forcing upon the attention of thinking minds, is this. That power passes more and more from individuals to masses. That the importance of the masses become constantly greater, that of individuals less. Look again at the slave. He's used indeed to make his will give way but to the commands of a master, not to a superior purpose of his own. He's wanting an intelligence to form such a purpose. After all, he cannot frame to himself the conception of a fixed rule, nor if he could, has he the capacity to adhere to it. He is habituated to control, but not to self-control. When a driver is not standing over him with a whip, he is found more incapable of withstanding any temptation or restraining any inclination than the savage himself. So you got these words from John Stuart Mill. At the same time, 30 years after, you've got a constitution against the French, against, against the, 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 the frameworks and delineations of what European civilization offers non-Europeans. It's really weird. And then, of course, you've got the US, and, you know, all good IR scholars know about the Monroe Doctrine, which says, you know, Europe hands off the Americas, um, you know, no more future colonization. Oh, except, and this is Monroe's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, the establishment of a government of people of colour on the island, i.e. Haiti, evinces distinctly the idea of a separate interest and a distrust of other states. So, this fear of Haiti means they have to, it has to be abjected from the Monroe Doctrine and the Society of Independent States. And of course, 
you know, whenever we all got this zombie crap going around now in IR, and you know, everything's zombie this, zombie economic, zombie this, zombie that, right? Uh, I mean, the 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 immediate the, the immediate origins of the of the fetish about zombies in the West comes from after the U.S. invasion of Haiti in um, when is it 1919 something like that? 1915. Thank you. Um, you know, the first invasion since the, the French out over a hundred years before. And coming back with the troops and the various people who went to Haiti was this eroticization and exoticization of this thing called the zombie, which they found there. And the zombie in, in voodoo basically is a, is a symbol of what you could never return to, which was an enslaved person. Better to be dead than to be a living dead, which is what you were when you were a slave. So, you've got fear, ridicule, ridicule, and just incomprehension about Haiti and Haiti's place in this thing called civilization. You know, civilization is an injection of providence into a culture. Then that injection can't be black. Can't be black. It, it's inconceivable, it's fearful, and it's ridiculous. Well, you know, there was one guy who did try to fit Haiti into the history of civilization, and that was our friend C.L.R. James, who was, you know, a Marxist, Trinidadian Marxist. And he wrote his famous book in the 1930s, um, The Black Jacobins. The, the subtitle is interesting, and you'll see when I come to it in the end. Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. And C.R. James' argument is basically, look, let's think about industrialization. Let's just replace carbon as an energy source with muscle, human muscle. And you will find that basically slavery was a precocious industrialization which preceded the, the, the carbon industrialization in Europe. And you had massive, massive um, forces of production at work, you know, to do, and an incredibly complex division of labour. C.L.R. James says the slaves are the industrialised Europeans of the tropics. And James's argument is why is it that the Haitians, well, that the enslaved in Saint-Domingue could have this, this revolution? And this argument is well, look, if we understand it as a precocious industrialisation, then we can use the, uh, the Marxist understanding of a dialectic which says that, you know, where capital is being extracted most mercilessly, or where the contradictions rise and rise and you have a revolution. So these guys, he's, he's basically saying the plantation is like, a, is like the factory. It's, it's a precocious factory, and that's why there was the revolution. Now, C.L.R. James, you know, um, magnificent as he is, in later years, when other people start doing research on the revolution, acknowledges that there was one problem with his argument, which was that the revolution didn't come from the plantations, it came from the hills. It didn't come from the plantations, from precocious workers working in this complex division of labour. It came from runaways and temporary runaways and maroons, and they instigated it in the hills hiding away from the plantations. And there was a very famous night, which is part legend, part history, 
and it's where the insurrection was um, was started. And it's at um, this wood called Cayman, Cayman Wood, Cayman. Uh, and it's led by some voodoo priests, a guy called Dutty Bookman, um, um, from West Africa, a Muslim originally. That's Bookman man in the book. Um, and Cecile Fatima, who's um, a Corsican and African um, enslaved and a voodoo um, priestess. And in this, they basically vow liberty or death. And everybody, through these voodoo rituals, you know, commit themselves to that cause because it would be better to be dead because you'd still be free. So it doesn't matter. Liberty or death, it doesn't matter. And you'll see that on the floor you have all these voodoo symbols and this is the one which I just want to touch upon. And you'll see why I'm saying this in a minute. And this is the crossroads and it's quite a significant symbol um, in, in Afro-religious, uh, Af religious spiritualities from the Afro-Americas. Um, if you like your blues, you, you know, you always meet the devil at a crossroads, right? Um, the crossroads symbolises something quite significant. It symbolises the site where you stand to intercede between the material and the spiritual, between profane knowledge and esoteric knowledge, to intercede for the spirits and the ancestors, the African spirits and the African ancestors to come and do something for you, enliven you in the Americas. So it's the point of intercession between the dead lands of the Americas and the living lands of, of Africa. And in these rituals, what people would do, and the, the, the anthropological word for it is called to become possessed, it's entirely the opposite. It's not about possession, it's entirely the opposite. During the day, you're a slave. You're dead. You have nothing. You're, an, you're a commodity. All you, have, all you do is what the master makes you do. At night is when you come alive. And you come alive because you invoke the spirits of the land of the living. And they ride you. They ride you. And through that, you actually self-actualise. You throw off your slavehood and you, and you put on your personhood. And in this, this night, what these people are doing is they're letting the, the African spirits ride them down into the plantations to destroy slavery. They're taking providence from Europe and subverting its whole narrative of civilization and what constitutes civilization and from that you get that constitution not directly but from that you get that constitution and you get this signal moment where where you have a, a, um, a, a definite a definitive um, destruction of an of a, of a legal um, moral and material order of plantation society. And of course, this civilization is, is anything, it's about becoming free. So, what I'm basically saying is that if we, if we look at Haiti like this, we can understand why, even in the present, it is such a weird thing for people. 
how it's never possible to quite recapture Haiti and put it in a history of civilization because it constantly subverts and breaks that whole thing. It destroys the notion of providence, white providence, which is what's injected into culture so that you can get this thing called civilization which leads us all. So I'm going to flesh out this challenge in this term, civilization versus the self-determination of the enslaved. Civilization versus the self-determination of the enslaved. And I'm going to flesh it out by looking and relating the historical sociology of C.L.R. James to the poetics of Derek Walcott, who's a St. Lucian poet, a, a, a famous um, Nobel Prize winning poet from St. Lucia. Um, and the reason why I'm calling it historical sociology is because it's about how we understand history. How we understand history. So it, it has historical materialism within it, but it's a bit broader than that. My, what I'm bringing to bear, the critique I'm bringing to bear, it's about history with a capital H. So let's just go back to, to CLR. Are you kind of with me or not? Roughly? Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, whatever you get is whatever you get. I mean, I'd, I'd like to know what you get because that might be a bit more. I'll know what it is a bit more. Um, so, CLR James. Well, the way which I explain CLR James is that. First and foremost, you have to understand that he's coming out of what's called the native intellectual tradition. And the native intellectuals, in quotes, in the colonies, have this real dualism associated with their position. Because they're of the colonial peoples, but they're raised up slightly above the rest by virtue of getting a colonial education which will equip them to be, you know, apparatchiks or teachers, you know, that kind of thing. And, it's and, and that's what the defining tension within this thing called native intellectual is. Now, C.L.R. Jones, he gets his classical colonial education. And this classical colonial education is all about starting off with ancient Greece as the, as the, as the fount of European civilization and all that is good. Running it through Oxford, um, and then making it become this European thing. So C.R. James gets this, you know, education, classical education, which is all about thinking about morality and politics through ancient Greece. Right. He's especially um, taken with the, the old um, tragic um, traditions in, in ancient Greece because he sees it as an as an imminent democratic art form, um, which incorporates the, the, the people into the, into, the his, into the narrative of the, the thing which is unfolding. You, native intellectuals are more versed and more, more capable in this kind of classical tradition than, than Europeans. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Here's what James says when he reaches England in his 30s. He writes a letter back home. In the two things in which the English stand so high, the writing of poet, um, poetry and political genius, it's unfortunate that I knew these things before I came. 
So, you know, you're talking about a real proper classical education, you know, in the colonies more than anywhere else. Um, so this is part of this whole thing. He's, he's, he's taught in this framework of civilization. But at the same time, because he's coming from the, from the colonies, from the colonial peoples, he necessarily identifies with this struggle for self-determination against Europe. And in his later writings, you know, he, he remembers back and he says, you know, the first thing that I, the first thing that I wrote, that I read, was um, Marcus Garvey's Negro World. It's uh, Marcus Garvey was this kind of famous um, pan-Africanist uh, in the early 20s. Um, a Jamaican guy went to the US, um, created this huge organisation, one million people, three million supporters. Uh, published the newspaper, the Negro World, in three languages all over the all over the world. Um, black sailors sold it to Japanese sailors in in Hawaii, it, it, everywhere. Um, and it was about self determination and and in many ways race first, not class first. But God, but, but C. L. R. Jones, see, I remember this. This was the, this was the context. I remember. The, seat, the, the, the workers on the dock selling, selling me the Negro world and I was reading it. And his first written piece, political piece, was on the life of this guy called Captain um, Kipriani, who was a, a unionist but also one of the first independence leaders in Trinidad. Right? So on the other side of this thing, he's got this self-determination ethos right, against Europe. So he's got this really, and, and that self-determination ethos is 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 very much um, imbued with this with, with um, a racial optic rather than a class optic, right? You, you know, so that's very important. Um, the way that he deals with it is, and he's split between being a man of the people and being an intellectual, and he resolves that in many ways through his Marxism. So by the time he gets to England, he's reading Trotsky, History of the Russian Revolution. He's reading, uh, he, at the same time, however, he's reading Spengler, Divine, uh, Decline of um, European Civilization. And, and that's a very important thing because he's always combining a class analysis with a civilizational framework. I would actually say that's the roots of Marxism, though. Right? So it's not necessarily... Um, out of, out of the ordinary, but it's, in, it's especially drawn up as a contradiction in, in C.L.R. James's writing. And, and from this heavy combination of class and civilization, he, by the 40s, he's, he's, he's decided on this, this thing which will sort it out for him, and he calls it the dialectic of freedom. And it's a Hegelian, Marxist Hegelian trope, basically. And the, the argument is, is that what drives history is the contradictions which surround self-actualization through your own labor. So you actualize yourself as a human being by doing labor, creating things, and it's the creation of the thing which actualizes you as a human being. He says there's a fundamental contradiction and that is between the universal man, which he calls it a man, and the alienated man. 
And the alienated man is that man who's a factory worker and works and then has his, the, the fruits of his labour expropriated from by, by the capitalist, right? So that's how it's kind of Marxist, right? But nevertheless, he says, the, 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 the classical composition of the universal man was in ancient Greece, where you could be everything and you could create your own thing. So it's a very standard kind of idea in, in a classical education, and also in Hegel, by the way. It seeps into Marxism through there. And so he runs this dialectic of freedom all the way through history, through the French Revolution, that's what it's about. But then he says it reaches its most intense points, not in Europe, but in the Americas. So that's his big thing. He's basically saying, you know, it reaches its, 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 the point of its contradiction actually comes about not in Europe, even if that's where it starts, but in the Americas and in the Haitian Revolution and all the, all the struggles over slavery, because this is the, 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 most, the most extreme contradiction in the dialectic of freedom, that in an age of enlightenment and civilization, which talks about freedom everywhere, you have absolute oppression, slavery. So the people who are enslaved are going to feel this dialectic of freedom the most, and they're going to drive forward history. So note that his dialectic of freedom is all about self-actualization. And self-actualization is really the coordinates of political self-determination for CLR Janus. Yet all the time, he's surrounded by self-determination movements from the Caribbean, which don't take their reference point to be ancient Greece, universal man in ancient Greece. Don't accept that. Don't accept the source of the dialectic. You have black power movements with Walter Rodney. That comes along a bit later. And they might, they, and many of them might be Marxist or fellow travellers, but they're talking about they're talking about black liberation, not working class liberation. Even though many of black peoples in the Caribbean would be called, well, they wouldn't even be called working class by strict Marxist standards, but certainly, certainly the sufferers. You've got um, George Padmore, another Marxist, but one who constantly talks about anti-imperialism and self-determination from Europe. You have Marcus Garvey, of course, which continues to percolate through, and you've got the Rastas, who talk, who, who, who talk about going back to Africa. So all the time that CLR is outlining this dialectic freedom, he's surrounded by movements of self-determination, of self-actualization, which refuse to actually carry forward the same dialectic and say, screw Greece. What did Greece ever give us except suffering and misery? And enslavement will go somewhere else, and we'll we'll have a different we'll have a different story. So it's a real um, it's a real you know kind of contradiction basically, a real tension is a better word, and it comes out and it's funny because it's actually prefigured in C.L.R. James's 1930 work on the Black Jacobins. It's prefigured there, and it works out in these two characters, Toussaint Louverture who's the, you know, the subtitle of the book, and Dessaline, who's the, the second in command, who then takes over when Toussaint is spirited away by the French to die in the Alps. And, and James's argument is Toussaint Louverture is the preferable leader, because Toussaint was a Francophile. He appreciated French civilization, both in terms of culture and politics. He also says that Toussaint is the man who, who knows how to, uh, how to actually 
have an economic system which will support independence. And that need, we need to stay with the French because the French are going to actually do that for us. They're going to give us resources, cultural, economic, and educational capital, if you like. But James also says Tucson is the guy who ends up separating himself from the masses of the people. And he does, and there's various ways in which he, that happens in the Haitian Revolution. Dessalines is the Francophobe. He hates French. In fact, he orchestrates in the end days of the revolution, he orchestrates a genocide of all French people on the island. He hates French people and, and, and Europe. And he rather wants independence than development. This is C.L.R. James's argument. So Tucson is the idea about development, modernization, carrying through the Europe thing. And Dessalines is about self-determination, independence, and you know, screw what that might mean for development and civilization. And the CLR torturously identifies with Tucson, and in doing so, he cuts off all this. So, what I'm basically saying is that in this kind of thing, what he's what he ends up doing is making the enslaved peoples and the people who drive forward these revolutions and drive forward this dialectic of freedom, he makes them substitute Greeks. He makes them substitute Greeks. They're not ridiculed or feared anymore in, in CLR's narrative. But they're not self-actualising. They're not self-actualising. They're simply taking on a history of other peoples which has already been happening. And they're just playing the end chapter of it. And that's a really big tension in C.L.R. Jones. And it's, moreover, a tension, if we go back to those things that I was saying about the insurrections and how the insurrections happen. So what I'm going to briefly do now is just look at Derek Walcott. And I, briefly, because I'm just using him to problematise C.L.R. And I want to start with just reading a few lines. I'm a really, I'm a crap poet and I know it. <laughs> but I'm going to read it anyway. On Derek Walcott's um, famous poem called The Sea's History. And, it start, it's in, and these are the first four lines. Where are your monuments, your battles, martyrs? Where is your tribal memory, sirs? In that grey vault, the sea. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. And so what Walcott's basically saying is slaves can't have history. They can't have their own history. Enslaved peoples might create something of their own, but slaves can't have their own history. And all history becomes is an imperial chain, literally, of cause and effect. These people did this thing on that, and that led to that. The masters, the slave masters, did this to the slaves. And that happened to the slaves. You know, if you're thinking of enslaved peoples actualizing themselves, their personhoods, that's something different. So this is Walcott's big beef with history, right? And, and he, he, he says it like this. History taught as morality is religion. History taught as action is art. Those are the only uses to which we, mocked as a people without history, can put it. Because we have no choice but to view history as fiction or as religion. 
then our use of it will be idiosyncratic, personal, and therefore creative. All of this is beyond the sociological, even beyond the civilised assessment of our endeavour. And Walcott's famous thing is to counterpose, not to counterpose, but to relate the Greek islands to the Caribbean islands, but in a way which doesn't put one over the other. In other words, Walcott hates the idea that you could say that Caribbean islands are like the Greek islands, as if the Greek islands came first. And then you were just being substitute Greeks on another set of islands. In fact, I chose that picture particularly because Walcott says, you know, all this romance about the ancient Greeks, he says, you know, if we were around today, everybody would be calling them Puerto Ricans because they're just loud and gaudy and colourful and... You know, they ain't those, you know, nice classical, you know, dudes. Um, so Walcott's basically saying, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to have these chains of cause and effect. That can't actualise ourselves. We can't have any, we can't be, we can't be anything except objects. And to that he poses, well, so he says two things. He says, so first of all, I'm not going to imagine the Caribbean as either a way station to the future which is a European civilised future. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take Europe as the font or the end. There's not going to be a European tennis here. But neither am I going to take Africa to be the, the primordial font either. Because both of those mean that I'm enslaving myself into this chain of cause and effect, imperial cause and effect. And I don't want to do that. So he says, I'm going to have a different understanding of the Caribbean, of the Americas actually, and that's an Adamic vision. And the word Adam doesn't come from the, the colonial idea of Adam, as in Caliban and Prospero, i.e. You, you give something a name that you've decided you're going to give it, and it will have to be that. You're a slave. That's what you are. It's not that. It's another kind of Adamic version, vision, which comes a sense of Adam, which comes out of the magical realism stuff, and that's that you find the names which are already extant in entities. So when you go to a place, you ask the place what its name is. So it might sound a bit funny; it's a poetic thing, but the principle is you don't give something a name; you find its own name, and that way. You separate it from the imperial chain of cause and effect, and you can allow it to actualize itself. So this is all about coming to personhood for descendants of enslaved peoples, basically. This picture I've done, I put specifically, I can't remember who did it, it's a Haitian guy, but it's, it's a great picture because you might not be able to see it. But here the enslaved, these are the Maroons, the people who ran off. And they're just hiding behind the boulder. <laughs> you can only just see them. But it's this presence. And the presence is important because Walcott is saying, even though I'm saying that there's this thing called the Americas, which is, which is an Adamic vision, we find what its name is already. It's not anything you want it to be. Because, and it's not a blank canvas either. We can't but not say that echoes in the canvas come from the memories of genocide of the indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples. So it's very important that Walcott says that it's not a free association here. It's not, I can't make anything out of this. I have to ask it its name 
but that name already resonates with the bitter memories of slavery and genocide. But I will not carry those memories into the future to define this thing, because that's a different kind of Adamic name. So he's working in, that, in those kind of interstices, basically. That's the, that's the kind of poetic um, vision that he has. And that's how he uses the, the, this poetic vision to destabilise a history wherein the descendants of enslaved peoples can't actualise themselves. They can't, they can't actualise their own personhoods. He does actually talk about Haiti. Walcott actually wrote three plays early on in his career on Haiti. And in one of them, he wrote Manst, one of the leaders who followed Toussaint Dessaline, this guy called Christophe, who built all these huge structures that you can't quite see it, but this is his citadel, Citadel Christophe, which is right in the hills. It's massive. It's the biggest, I think it's still the biggest fortress or historical, you know, historical fortress in the Western Hemisphere. And it was built as a redoubt. Again, it was the last place you would go. It was like, um, what's that, the Jewish place? Masada? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, Masada, yeah. So it's kind of basic. It's the place you go. If when the French come back, and if we fail, this is where we'll go, and we'll survive up there. It's massive, right? And it and it still exists. And and in in the play, Walcott kind of celebrates and he says, "This is this is where we can say our history is." You said we haven't got any civilization. Look, look, we've got this massive monument to rival the old Greek monuments. And he has Christoph saying after he's built this, and he's, Christoph's just about to die, he says, the one final thing is death and how you die. I die crammed. And you, white man, this death beats dying. I have built this chateau of my past that no time eats a slave. I survive. Later on, Walcott says, no, forget that. Forget that. It's just a monument. Why do I want to actually represent enslaved peoples through a monument which was, he says, basically one people's quarrel with another's God. Let me read the last bit of um, that poem, The Sea is History, because you'll see there where how he's problematising history. Then came the white sisters clapping to the waves' progress. That was emancipation. Jubilation, oh jubilation vanishing swiftly as the sea's lace dries in the sun. But that was not history. That was only faith. And then each rock broke into its own nation. Then came the synod of flies. Then came the secretarial heron. Then came the bullfrog bellowing for a vote. Fireflies with bright ideas and bats like jetting ambassadors and the mantis like khaki police and the furred caterpillars of judges examining each place closely. And then in the dark ears of ferns and in the salt chuckles of rocks with their sea pools, there was the sand like a rumour without any echo of history really beginning. So I guess what I'm trying to draw out of this relation of, of um, Walcott is problematisation of C.L.R. James thing with Walcott. I guess it's kind of two things. The first thing is actually, you know, European civilization is a poetics itself. It's the poetics of colonialism. That's what European civilization is. If you see it as that, then you don't see it as something 
a material claim on the future dispensation of humanity. You don't see it as that. You see providence as a muse. It's not material. All political economy is based on the idea of providence being driven forward materially. And it just happens that it's Europeans and Westerners who usually do it. But providence is a muse. And the materiality of European civilization is pure violence and expropriation. It then means that actually we can start thinking about critical traditions of thought which come directly out of Europe in a different way. Right, and we can start to see how they might be speaking to this problem as well, but in ways which we might not quite catch. Maybe all historically informed theories coming out of Europe, maybe they're all trying to play with this muse. The second thing is that the poetics which Walcott is, is talking about is basically an anti-colonial politics and it's necessary. It's necessary for self-determination. It's necessary because it's about a claim to an existing personhood. Without that, there's no self-determination. I want to finish by just reading a short line from um, Walter Rodney, because I think he really expresses this so well. And Walter Rodney, the, you know, the black power guy, right? Um, historical materialist, um, emphatically historical materialist wrote all these great, you know, kind of um, um, writings on Africa and the different modes of production in Africa and all that kind of stuff. He comes to Jamaica in 1968, and uh, you know he's affiliated with the University of West Indies there. But he spends a lot of his time not at the university speaking to historians, but down in in in, in the ghettos and in the what they call the gullies speaking to the Rastas. And here's what he says from that experience. Rastas are every day performing a miracle. Catch the language, he's a historical materialist. Rastas are every day performing a miracle. It's a miracle how those fellows live. They live and they are physically fit. They have a vitality of mind. They have a tremendous sense of humour. They have depth. How do they do that in the midst of the existing conditions? How do they do that in the midst of the existing conditions? And they create, they're always saying things. You know, some of the best painters and writers we have are coming out of the rest of our environment. The black people in the West Indies have produced all the culture that we have, whether it be steel band or folk music. Black bourgeoisie and white people in the West Indies have produced nothing. Black people who have suffered all these years create. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, thank you. Awesome.